Hey, everybody. Welcome to the ProGov Podcast, a monthly podcast exploring policies and tools for progressive local governance with leaders from policy research institutes around the U.S. The ProGov Podcast is brought to you by ProGov21.org, a free resource and public good for local legislators, policymakers, and advocates. ProGov21 is a fully searchable digital archive of thousands of progressive local and state policies and tools for their effective use. I'm your host, Ada Inman, and today we are joined by DeRay McKesson and Katie Ryan of Campaign Zero for an exciting discussion around local policing policy. Katie and DeRay, thank you both very much for joining me today. you're the co-founder of Campaign Zero, and Katie, you're Campaign Zero's chief of staff. Both of you have experience in education, policy, and activism. Can you each tell me about your current work and how you got to where you are today? And DeRay, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I uh, I started out as a sixth grade math teacher, the best job I ever had. And when I was a teenager in Baltimore, I was an activist, uh, but it was teaching that really helped me understand and see the link between policy and, and real people's lives and, and how hard it is to do this work well every day, but how important it is to do the work well every day. I was in the original protesters in Ferguson during the protest. And as the protest died down on the street, I was trying to figure out how do we make sure this never happens again? And that was the birth of Campaign Zero. So super pumped by that. And, you know, we do structural work around the country that is like figure out how to push people to solutions. And I'm sure Katie agrees that like teaching, I think gave me the stamina or working education, gave me the stamina, gave me the ability to, to take big ideas and make them into bite-sized pieces to help people get towards a goal. All those skills, uh, I think we probably have similar learnings there, but it's been great. And uh, we have a lot more to do and I cannot be here if I was not a teacher first. So my background is also in education. Again, being a high school teacher of government, civic, economics, and history is hands down coolest, best job ever had. I always was drawn to education because I feel so strongly that resolving and speaking to educational inequity is actually like a pathway to a more just and racially equitable society. I ended up throughout my career teaching in multiple places, supporting schools that needed school improvement plans, and then eventually opening a turnaround school. So a school that had been failing for poor performance and safety concerns, reopening that school in an underserved neighborhood was one of the most fulfilling and challenging jobs of my lifetime. Towards the close of that section of my career is when George Floyd was murdered. And I felt really compelled to actually pivot my career into a space of racial justice. And I was just fortunate enough that DeRay invited me to help support Campaign Zero with some of the campaigns, especially with so much outcry after uh, George Floyd's murder. And here I am now supporting multiple individuals who are leading campaigns and a very large and scaling and growing organization that's doing a lot of tremendous work. Can you talk a little bit more about Campaign Zero and the resources you offer? Yeah, so it depends on the campaign, but in general, we, we put together every campaign as if it was somebody in our family impacted by it. That's the spirit with which we, we do this work. So some campaigns, we are behind the scenes technical assistance providers. Some campaigns, we're really out front pushing people. Our core campaigns, we have one around police union contracts. We have the only database of police union contracts in the country. Uh, another campaign is around use of force policies, the only database of use of force policies in the country and advocacy around that work. We do individual advocacy. So we have a Keith Davis campaign and Samuel Celestin. We just 
just launched uh, today, actually, a felony theft campaign. So we we have a lot of campaigns that are really structural, but what we offer to policymakers, community members, whatever, is a whole suite of tools and resources to help them get over the hump, whatever that is, whether it's like video, polling, you know, our best minds on the team thinking through things, uh, we put everything on the table. And I'd add that one of the things that's unique about our organization and one of the things that I'm proud of is that we do consider ourselves data-driven, meaning that we look at the numbers, we look at the impact of systemic issues, but we also look at the research and the case studies of individuals who are actually impacted by the structures that are in place. And so we classify ourselves as both data-driven and research-driven so that we never lose sight of the human element of the work that we do. Great. And so across all your campaigns that you have, are there any new reports or initiatives that our listeners should keep an eye out for? Yeah, so we actually have 14 emerging campaigns that we are launching in 2022. We launched one campaign today that addresses the issue of super low felony theft thresholds, right? So we have huge implications for individuals who are convicted of felonies. So I would encourage people to go check out raisethethreshold.com. We also launched an individual advocacy case for the family of a man named Samuel Celestin. He goes by Sammy. He was actually killed a few years ago by police in Florida. Sammy was experiencing a mental health crisis. And so we have a campaign for him to just demand justice and ensure that the law enforcement officers are held accountable. And that is on our site, samuelcelestin.com. The campaign is titled Justice for Samuel Celestin. And all of the information about his case and a call to action is featured on samuelcelestin.com. We have 12 other campaigns that we're going to be launching in 2022 to start chipping away at a lot of the issues of the systemic power of law enforcement. So I'm going to move to more policy-specific questions. First, just tell me a little bit about how you began to research the issue of no-knock search warrants and some of your essential learnings. So we got to know Knox because Breonna Taylor was killed in, in Louisville. It was a big story both across the country and across the world. And I was seeing people post pictures online. I was seeing people talk about it, but I, I wasn't really seeing how to end it. Like I just didn't, and I didn't know anything about it. So pulled together a team of people on our end and was like, okay, here's what we think. And we started off thinking that it was no-knock warrants, so we need to ban no-knock warrants. We somehow found Dr. Pete Kreska who, who was working on it. And I like, you know, part of our general approach is like we call all the smart people in a given area and like try and learn from them. So we called him and then we realized really quickly, like, oh my God, we were wrong. It's not just no-knock warrants. And then me and Katie helped to build out a rubric that mapped out 15 different points or, or things that people needed to pay attention to. And that was the birth of, that was the birth of the campaign. I love that DeRay is like, we somehow found Dr. Pete Kraska because DeRay's gift is finding people who are experts with a spirit of humility and being like, teach me teach us. So we didn't somehow find, Dre absolutely stalked him, was like, you know a oh, lot I about did. this issue. Yes. I emailed like, him, I tweeted him, I called people and asked him if they knew them. I really did. I forgot all about that. I did. No, because yeah. he told me, he was like, DeRay would not leave me alone. So I eventually felt I needed to answer. And it's true. And Dre was like, you need to teach us. And then we talked to him every day for like six months. And it, it was critical. It was crucial because we learned a ton. And one of the things that we learned was that you can't just categorically get rid of no-knock warrants, which is something that I, I think a lot of policymakers took for granted. It was like a no-knock warrant was the vehicle for the murder of Breonna Taylor, therefore get rid of no-knock warrants. And in fact, that is not the issue in its entirety. 
Breonna Taylor was killed in a no-knock raid, and you don't need a no-knock warrant. You don't need that type of paper to execute a no-knock raid. In fact, what you can do, or what law enforcement very frequently does, is you get a search warrant that's called a knock and announce, where the expectation is that you would knock, state your purpose, give wait time before entering, but you don't actually have to do that, right? Law enforcement can either boom, 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 police, knock the door down, that's a knock and announce, or knock the door down, police, that's a no-knock warrant. Functionally, there's like two seconds difference in those. So the issue that Breonna Taylor's death raised was how do we start to change restrictions for search warrants holistically to actually prevent this from happening again? When I read about your end all no knocks campaign, I was surprised to learn about the prevalence of no knock warrants, the use of flashbang grenades and plainclothes police raids. What impact do these kind of tactics have on police community relationships? The police can't even tell you why they need no knock raids or no knock warrants. They use this because they're like ramboing into people's communities. So you look at the data that does exist and you're like, wow, you're not even recovering a lot of evidence, a lot of, lot of anything. And when we think about how to keep communities safe, we're always focused on things that actually you know, do you make people safer? And this is one of those things that doesn't make people safer. Not only does it not make people safer, but it puts the police in situations that they choose to be in where they create unsafety, right? Where they're ramming into people's homes, shooting people, stuff like that. So we think that this is, you know, just like there's no campaign that is the end all be all, but we think about this one as one that's important that'll save people's lives. And to be clear, some of the issues that you're raising, things like flashbang grenades, nighttime raids, officers not being in uniform, those are practices that can occur under knock and announce warrants, right? A lot of people don't think, oh, a low level drug offense should require officers in black sweatsuits with grenades in the middle of the night. That actually can happen because there is so little oversight and so few restrictions on search warrants across the board. And one of the things that our campaign seeks to do is to really rein in these practices of these sort of like wild, wild west Rambo tactics that are being used to execute search warrants for lots of times issues that aren't even matters of public safety. And to do that is to ensure that people, that cops are visible as law enforcement. They don't look like they are intruding in someone's home. Get rid of nighttime raids. Get rid of flashbang grenades that mimic gunfire and that can sear people's bodies and have caused tons of injury. How frequently should those things be utilized or used? And our argument is very, very rare, if ever. What do you wish elected officials understood about no-knock raids and related policing tactics that, in your experience, they miss? Yeah, we really push policymakers and organizers to understand the nuances of search warrants. If you categorically get rid of no-knock search warrants, you're not actually tackling the whole issue of raids, right? That we need to look more thoughtfully at the way in which we allow law enforcement to barge into people's homes for what purpose, for such little oversight and for basically no reporting whatsoever. We also want lawmakers and organizers to consider the fact that there are a number of people who own guns legally. The last statistic that I read was roughly 40% of American households have guns in them. When, as law enforcement, we're choosing to startle people and enter their home, as recently occurred with Amir Locke, you can count on at least 40% of the time being met with gunfire. And there are so few situations in our communities where that would be worthwhile. I think the only thing I'd add is, is that the, we want lawmakers to like trust their common sense, right? 
the police will say things like they're like oh my god 30 seconds is gonna get me killed like i'm waiting for 30 seconds and it's like you know most people can't get from their bed to the front door in 30 seconds without running 30 seconds is still not a lot of time right so you know the police will say that if they have to wear uniforms they're gonna get killed and it's like you know you and i know that if 30 guys with guns rolled up on your house in jeans and a t-shirt you would think they were trying to kill you right like so sometimes it's like the police will say things that make no sense and we are literally just saying to the legislators like just slow down and say that out loud to yourself you know that don't make sense right you like i don't need to come and tell you you know it doesn't make sense so that's what we find too a lot is that the police will just say things that literally are silly and people be like well yeah and you're like that don't make no sense also to consider alternatives right the search warrant is being a first stop to an investigation or to apprehend someone who's dangerous also doesn't make sense people leave their homes right people go to the grocery store and if there's an individual who needs to be apprehended is it the smartest way to have a SWAT team to bust into their home in the middle of the night or to try alternative tactics that actually might keep individuals safe have any cities banned no-knock raids? And if so, what does that process look like? Yeah, so there's actually quite a few cities who have put a number of restrictions in place. So as DeRay mentioned earlier, one of the things that we did was to break out a model no-knock search warrant policy, comprehensive search warrant policy into a rubric. And that rubric includes 15 points of change, right? So we've worked with a number of cities, including Pittsburgh and Birmingham to adopt at least some portion of those 15 provisions. We have not seen any city yet adopt all 15. We certainly feel hopeful that that potential is there. We've also worked directly with six states, again, who have adopted some portion of the 15 provisions. And huge shout out to Maryland, who has the most comprehensive search warrant legislation in place right now. Uh, they meet nine and a half out of 15 points on our model policy. How much power do local government officials have when it comes to policing policy and implementation? Local government, meaning county and municipal governments. So local local governments have a ton. They are the people that actually probably have the most power to, to change the police, the police department's behavior or to move away from policing. I will tell you though, the police are really good at fear-based arguments and that works really well on legislators. Like they will, you know, legislators don't want to look like they're making the neighborhood unsafe or da da da. And that scares legislators to not use their power. But but your city council person, your governor have way more to do with what's happening in your community with regard to police than anybody else. So social scientists have found no consistent relationship between police staffing levels, police funding levels, and crime in the U.S. This doesn't mean that crime rates wouldn't change if there were no crime prevention efforts, only that within the range of observed changes in police staffing and budgets, there is no detectable relationship to crime. Further, the same research shows that police officers spend most of their time on non-criminal activities such as traffic accidents, noise complaints, and other service activities that are explicitly not related to crime prevention. So how should this information impact our thinking on policing policies and police reform? I actually can answer that looping back to the no-knock issue, right? When we know that law enforcement is spending such a small portion of their time in 
high-risk responses related to criminal activity. That means that we can have a high level of restriction and oversight for that very slim percentage of time, right? No-knock warrants, search warrant execution, we would all certainly consider as a high-risk activity. So us not having the utmost care in place, the highest level of restrictions, the highest level of preparation, and ensuring that it's used as an absolute last result, there's really no excuse or no reason not to do that because it is just such a small part of uh, law enforcement's job or responsibility. So how can activists work with local government leaders to implement progressive policing reforms? Yeah, so ultimately we're trying to shift away from policing as, as the key to public safety, right? But one of the things that we always say to everybody, including activists and organizers, is that there's no substitute for knowing the content, which is why we try to make everything public. We want everybody to know how we're rating policies, how we came up with it. You know, in Minneapolis, we we're helping the mayor change the no-knock policy. And it's really interesting, right? Because people will say things like they, they're like, what, what, how did you come to your analysis? What is, you know, what are you doing? As if there's some secret, we're like, it's all on the website. We're happy to show you the link on the website. We're happy to share it with you, but this is not a secret. We don't have like some secret analysis that you can't look at. So when we talk to community members or mayor's offices or whoever, we're, we want people to know, like, here are the 15, here are like, here's the framework you should probably work in, but what you do in it, you can do a lot in that. and. and and that's what we say to activists and organizers like we'll take the legwork of like you know reviewing every single search warrant law across the country every like we'll do that but we'll put it make it all public so that you can use it to be an advocate in your own community and that you can walk in the room knowing the content as well as anyone else so my last question what does equitable policing look like to you when you think about the future in the most positive light what do you think we can accomplish and where should we focus our resources yeah, so we think about the questions like, what does safety look like? And what safety looks like is, you know, strong communities that have uh, people who have all the resources they need to make the decisions that are healthy for them and, and the people in their lives, right? So that's like a living wage, just access to food and healthcare and education, all those things is like what safety actually looks like in community. It's not the police. Police are not, we don't think, key to safety, that at best the police sort of respond when things get out of hand, but they don't even do that particularly well using their own data, right? So we're all always trying to figure out in, in the justice world, there are two parts. It's how do we get rid of the bad? How do we build the good? We're trying to take down the bad that is like, kill people and ruin people's lives for so long? How do we get rid of no-knock rates? How do we put in place use of force policies that save people's lives? How do we get rid of mandatory minimums? How do we take down all those policies and practices that are really bad to give space for the good to arise? And also how do we remove individuals with guns from responding to a conflict that might arise, right? Our communities are smart enough and compassionate enough to be able to resolve our own conflicts. We just need resources and opportunity and also don't need to have the one-stop shop or only solution be to call someone who is armed to come into the community to resolve a conflict. That was Deray McKesson, co-founder of Campaign Zero, and Katie Ryan, Campaign Zero's chief of staff. Campaign Zero is a project of the nonprofit organization We the Protesters. Campaign Zero provides analysis of policing practices across the country, research to identify effective solutions to end police violence, technical assistance to organizers leading police accountability campaigns, and the development of model legislation and advocacy to end police violence nationwide. Campaign Zero, thank you so much for your work and for your contributions to the ProGov 21 Policy Library. And as always, thank you to the Free Music Archive for providing our soundtrack. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ada Inman, and this is the ProGov Podcast.
We'll be back next month with a new episode discussing progressive local policy around health, featuring guests from Change Lab Solutions. ProGov21 is excited to announce the launch of our new website on April 1st. The new website will have updated digital library search and filtering functions, newly designed policy roadmaps, updated material submission options, and many more features. You won't want to miss it. You can visit our new website on April 1st at www.progov21.org. To keep up to date with ProGov21 in the meantime, you can follow us at ProGov21 on Twitter, sign up to receive our newsletter, and check out our constantly expanding, fully searchable online library of progressive policy resources at progov21.org. 